Well, it's a good day to be in church. Yes, it is, man. We want to do this. Can we do take a moment and welcome our Branchville facility campus? Gentlemen, good morning. We're so glad you're here with us. We love you. We honor you today. And we want to welcome those of you who are joining us online, Facebook, YouTube, however you're watching today. We're glad you decided to join us. If you're a guest here with us, in front of you there's a card that says, Guest, Welcome. If you take it, fill it out, scan it, do the thing. We'll give you a free drink at the end. If you don't want somebody to know that you ever came here, don't do anything. Okay? Uh, just, just stay there. Let me tell you two things that are happening uh, in the next two weeks here that are super important to our church. Number one, next weekend, everybody say next weekend. Next weekend, we have two amazing opportunities for you. We have Starting Point, which is a class that teaches you everything about how to become part of this church. Right. If you're new, you're new to this church, you're new to this area, you haven't been coming to the church very long, tells you our history, what we believe, why we believe it, how to be involved, starting point is the place you go to. And to sign up for that class, it happens during both services, congruent with this service and 9 o'clock. Okay, so sign up by going to hillsturch.info. You can do that right now to learn more about that. And next weekend, uh, I don't bring in a ton of guest speakers here, but uh, when I get the chance to have some of the best in the country... I take it. Uh, next week, Pastor Caleb Kaltenbach, who's an author of Messy Grace, has just put out another book called Messy Truth, okay, whose pastor, uh, as his goal is to bring people from walks of life closer to Jesus, specifically those in the LGBTQ community. His unique upbringing and powerful testimony will change your life. You need to be here. Okay, I'm just telling you, you don't want to miss it. And uh, you're, you're going to see the strategy, and it's just amazing uh, what God did in his life, and uh, I'm looking forward to having him. Two weeks is Father's Day. Woo! You know what? I'm so tired of Father's Day being overlooked. <laughs> we get up here, we say, two weeks till Mother's Day. The whole place does a wave. Everybody goes nuts. Okay. Ladies, let me help you. Father's Day is in two weeks. Normally, I give men heads up, go to Target, buy a card, do all that stuff. Ladies, do not go to Target and buy a card, period. We don't want one. Here's what every man wants on Father's Day. He wants the opportunity to practice becoming a father again. And we don't want it wrapped. It is virtually free. Some elders are asking me to move faster, and I would like to pause in that moment. So, do everything. Dad Fest is an incredible service we have here. Okay, we celebrate dads because we believe dads are some of the best heroes in every person's life. And if you don't feel like a hero, dad, we will make you feel like one that day. So bring your dad. If you're a dad, come here. It's just an amazing time. Dad Fest is awesome. We have a driving range set up outside, football things. We got uh, bacon kebabs and all kinds of craziness. We have root beer on tap, okay? Root beer. Okay, don't come here and be like, where's the beer again? <laughs> be like, okay. Uh, that's outside in the parking lot on the other side. We do that differently, all right? So we're in week three of our series, The Good Work. Pastor Paul spoke last week 
And this week I'm closing this series on the good work. And I hope that this message is encouraging to you, but it might be a little bit difficult. And it's entitled Standing Strong in the Face of Opposition. Here's what I hope you'll understand. That if God is leading you to do anything good, that if you're ever going to do anything great for God, okay, that you should expect opposition. That it's, it's going to come. It is headed your way the second you make a declaration that you want to do something good for God. Expect obstacles. Expect resistance. Now, this has happened from the beginning of time. Okay, Adam and Eve had the serpent. Moses had Pharaoh. David has Goliath. Jesus has several. He's got Herod, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, Judas, the devil. Luke has Darth Vader. Different book, same application. Nehemiah has two foes that are his strongest opposition. The two guys we're going to talk about today, Sambalot and Tobiah. Perhaps you're joining us this week and you don't know the backstory because you missed the last previous week. You don't know Nehemiah's story. And Nehemiah's story is a pretty, pretty humbling guy. He's just an ordinary guy who's a cupbearer to the king. His job is to drink the wine before the king and He's been doing this for a long time, and the king likes him a little bit. And his brother comes and tells him, hey, all of our people have been wiped out. All of our culture has been destroyed. It's thousands of miles away. It, li it is literally living in rubble. And his heart breaks when he hears that, and he determines that somebody's got to do something. It might as well be me. So he seeks God's favor. He goes and he prays to God, and God gives him favor with the king, and the king then gives him permission to go back to rebuild Jerusalem. It's a fascinating journey, and I wish we had time to go through the entire book of Nehemiah. We just don't today. Go in the Bible, read it up to this point, and we're in chapter 4 today. And last week they started rebuilding, and here we're catching up with the rebuild effort. And they start rebuilding a group of gates, and here are the name of the gates. They're rebuilding the sheep gate, the fish gate, the valley gate, the horse gate, water gate, and the dung gate. I cannot make these gate names up to you. I do not want to live near the dung gate or figure out how I got its name. But what's happening here is we know this, that Nehemiah is more like a pastor than a builder. And he doesn't know how to build gates and Actually, he's been sent on this journey, and there are no carpenters with him, and there are no masonry people with him, but he has, in turn, goldsmiths and perfume makers and merchants. So what's, what's interesting is that even though he has nobody that is qualified to make these gates, he's making headway with a bunch of perfume makers. They're building this, and that's where we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, when Sambalot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. And he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Now, feeble, the way we use it is kind of old and decrepit, and that's not what it meant here in the Hebrew text. Feeble meant a flower with its flower portion cut off, just a stem. What are, these, 
What do these stem-only flowers think they're doing? He's like, this is weird. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? He starts to get a little snarky and a, and a little affect going on. Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Will these great perfume makers do everything in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from the heap of rubble burned as they are? Here comes Tobiah, the other one, the Ammonite, who's on his side and says, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break their wall down of stones. Now, here's what I want you to see. When the work starts to go down, the opposition shows up. When they start building something, when they start doing something, because at first they just see a bunch of merchants and perfume makers and goldsmiths, so they're like, they can't build a wall. Now they see half a wall, and they start ridiculing, and they're like, well, if you even put a small little dumb animal on there, the whole thing's going to collapse. So opposition immediately shows up. And unfortunately, just like Nehemiah, that's true for many of us. When you try to do something for God the first time, opposition will show up. You might be going to church for the first time in a long time and you're running late and you're cussing each other out on your way here. And you're like, I, I don't think this is the way we're, we're supposed to do this. Or maybe you're trying to get out of debt. And the reliable car you've ever had in your life explodes. Maybe you start serving ministry on Sunday. You're like, hey, man, I'm going to be there. I'm going to help in this area. i got to be there at 7. you got the kids ready. Everybody's packed up, ready to go. And the kid up chucks Fruit Loops all throughout the back of your car. Whenever you do something great for God or start moving in the direction, opposition will show up. You may do something like this. You may tell somebody, you know what, this is what God's telling me to do. And all of a sudden, the people you care about, you tell one person, they tell you it's a stupid idea. It'll never work. That you're just dumb. So what I hope you understand is don't be surprised when you face opposition. Because this, advancement invites opposition. Anytime you're advancing in something, it invites opposition towards itself. Now, here's what you need to understand. The devil doesn't bother with you if you're not a threat. He doesn't care. If you're not a threat, there's no reason to advance towards you. He likes the fact that you're just walking, doing his will, right? If you want to have an easy life, I can give you the idea. Here, here are the ideas to a cruise control life that you will literally have no opposition in life, okay? Coast alone. Do comfortable things. Never stand for anything. Just be comfortable all the time, 24-7. Make perfect Instagram posts and be like blessed. Only go to church when you want to. You won't really be challenged enough, but you'll still kind of get credit. Right? And do some spiritual things. Don't do enough to be dangerous. Just do some spiritual things. And you'll coast along and you'll just have this perfect life with no opposition. No one's going to get in your way. But I'm going to fair warn you, the moment you step out in faith, you are engaged in a real battle with a real enemy who is really mad that you turned up the heat on him. Right? Because 
Here's what, here's what you want. If God is calling you to step up, to serve, to tithe, to pray, to invite, to show love, not just in church, but as a church in the world, the moment you do so, you will face opposition. I don't know if you know this, but you're allowed to talk about everything else in the world but Jesus. He is offensive. So the second you mention his name, why do you think that is? The devil doesn't care if you like everybody. He's really mad if you like Jesus. And he's really going to make sure that he puts the pressure on you. So when you have opposition, you're also going to have critics. The loudest booze you ever get in your life will come from the cheapest seats. I'm serious. The loudest booze you're ever going to get in your life will come from the cheapest seats. How do you respond to critics, haters, naysayers? Are you one of those people, man, that if somebody writes something on social media, you must respond? You're like, oh, they're not going to talk to me like that. Do they know who they're messing with? What's the idea? What are you supposed to do? What does Nehemiah do? When critics come at him, what are you supposed to do? When naysayers and haters come at him, what do you do? Nothing. Nehemiah doesn't do anything. He doesn't respond. He doesn't answer. He doesn't defend. Let me help you out. Your responses are not going to convert your critics. You are going to empower them. Because until you recognize them, they had no power. Let me give you a real-to-life illustration. Some of you were really bent out of shape by Evansville 411 and what they said about our church. Do you know who didn't care? Me. I don't know them. And even if I did, I wouldn't care. I didn't ask their permission to build a church. God said build a church, so I built a church. I'm not asking, I'm not taking a poll to do what God wants me to do. Right? And we're not, I don't go out there. So let me ask you this. Don't raise your hand because I, I still have a heart in here. I know it seems like I don't. But I do. How many of you have heard criticism about this church? Don't raise your hand. How many, how many of you have ever heard criticism about me? Don't raise your hand. Got a heart in here. Still hurts. Right? How many times have you seen me respond? Zero. Why? Because I'm not here to convert the critics. If God says this is what you do, that's what you do. You move that direction. And look, my mom says this, and, I, and, and it's so true, and, and I'm not saying that everybody's an idiot, but, <laughs> but she says, never argue with a moron. They'll bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. Right? And you're wasting your time. Your job is not to, you know, convert your critics. Your job is to do what you were called to do. And you're wasting your time because it doesn't end up anything. And it's not easy to deal with haters, especially if they come from within your own family. Sometimes you'll tell people your God-sized dream and the first people to shoot it down are your family members or your friends. You can't do that. Man, that's stupid. That's a waste of time and money. Don't quit your job to do that. I remember 
telling somebody that I was called into ministry. And at this point, I'm 18 years old. I had already committed to join the military. My brother is a nuclear engineer, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go blow people up. And God's like, you, you, you shouldn't do that. And so my mentor at that time, I'd spent four years in ROTC. His name was Master Chief McFarland, big mentor of mine. I told him, hey, I, I think I want to go be a pastor. And he's like, you are wasting your life. You, this is the most ridiculous. And he wouldn't talk to me for days. I can't believe you would do this to me. Anytime God calls you to do something, you're going to face opposition. It doesn't matter if it's God calling. He, he's going to be there with you, but you're going to have opposition. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to feel called to do something like foster, and someone's going to say something like this. You can barely handle the children you have. You shouldn't, you don't need to have another child in your house. Let me give you the other side of that story. If you don't do it, no one else will either. You know how many people are just comfortable sitting in a city that has the largest per capita foster care in the United States? We have more kids in care per capita than L.A. And guess who goes home every night and puts their head down? We're doing something. I'm like, we're not doing anything yet. I'm not going to bed till every kid has a home. Why? Because the Bible's clear. Take care of the widowed and the orphan. And we've relegated to the government what was our calling. We're like, well, the government's supposed to, that's what my taxpayers are supposed to do. No, that's what you're supposed to do. Well, I'm preaching much better than you all are letting down. That's okay. Someone's going to be told to start a small group and somebody, you know, you're going to be like, God tells you to start a small group. Someone's going to be like, you're not, you don't know anything about the Bible. You shouldn't be teaching that. You need to learn more about the Bible first. You know when you'll learn more about the Bible? When you're teaching other people about the Bible. You keep teaching, you'll keep learning. There will always be an excuse. You're too young, you're too old, you're too busy, you're too inexperienced, you don't have what it takes. There are going to be critics everywhere. It's too negative. And here's the thing. They don't know your God. I love what Pastor Craig Rochelle says here. He's like, that's why it's really important in any form of leadership, any form of influence, any form of ministry, I always tell myself, I'm not going to be moved by praise or criticism. I'm not going to let the praise go to my head and the criticism go to my heart. Don't ever get so puffed up to think that you're the only answer. But don't ever get so negative that you can't be part of the solution. You've got to have the balance of both. And here's where Nehemiah does. He doesn't answer to his critics. He answers to God. Instead of engaging on a lower life form and going on social media and having it out, I wish they would just bring back punch face, okay, where you had to tell somebody face-to-face -face what you were thinking. Because half these people don't have the nerve to say it, right? That'd be awesome. I should have joined the military. <laughs> Nehemiah doesn't go to a lower level. He turns to a higher power. Here's what he says. He prays. Verse 4, chapter 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Basically saying we have haters. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over to plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. 
for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their might. What does Nehemiah do? He pauses to pray, and then he immediately goes back to work. What are you supposed to do when somebody, when God gives you a vision and you're working, and somebody comes and critiques you, you pause, you pray, you recenter yourself, and then you get your shovel back out and you go back to work. You don't waste your time engaging criticism, right? Sometimes we, we get so spiritual that we're not very practical, and sometimes we're too practical to be very spiritual, and you have to have both. You need to make sure that in every situation that you're praying, but that you also put down the prayer box and pick up the shovel, Right? Some of you are like, I pray that this loved one come to know Jesus, but you don't even talk to that loved one. Pray, pick up the shovel. Well, I, I can critique them. Who are the people you are not going to convert? Critics and people you criticize. If you criticize them, they're not coming to know Jesus and you're not working towards it. Pick up your shovel, put down your Bible. And some of you, all you do is shovel. You can build everything, but you haven't prayed in 20 years. Pick up your Bible and put down your shovel. You need both. And that's what he does perfectly here. Nehemiah is a perfect balance of a builder and a man of God. And in verse 10, we see this. We know that he takes out a shovel. He, he, he gets that grace of God and in verse 10 and says, Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of our labors is giving out, and there's too much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Last week, and, and Pastor Paul, when he was speaking, we saw progress. This week, we see discouragement. They were building the walls, and Nehemiah hears this discouragement from his fellow workers. And then in verse 11, it says this, also our enemy said, before they know it or see it, we'll be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Whenever you turn, they will attack us. People are doubting the tribe of Judah. They're, they're, they're doubting Nehemiah. Nehemiah's friends are starting to doubt. They're losing hope. But in every type of opposition, of all of them, external haters, relational, spiritual, the most disastrous and the hardest one to fight is internal, is internal opposition. The voice that says, who do you think you are? You don't have what it takes. Who, who are you really? Nate, if you'll come join me. I don't know who this might speak to, but there's someone here who needs to understand you're more than the insecurities that you tell yourself. You're more than that. The external opposition will only be as loud as my internal securities allow them to be. See, the moment Nehemiah started to battle his own insecurities, he took the focus off himself and back on God's mission. So when you have a bunch of self-talk, your first job, your first response is to remind yourself who you are and who you serve. That's what we see Nehemiah do in verse 14. It says, after I looked these things over, 
this right after everybody said, you couldn't do it, we're going to kill you, we're going to attack you. He says, I looked over what you said. I stood up and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. My focus is not on what they said. My focus is on the hand of God that was on me. He would say things like, I remember when I was just a cupbearer and nobody saw me. And I prayed and, and the Lord gave me favor with the king and, and then I prayed again and the king gave me resources and people and money and I prayed again and I was able to go to my people and when it was in ruin, I prayed again and the people were encouraged and I prayed again and I remembered. See, he's taking his focus off of himself. That isn't the battle. Your, your job is not to fight the battle. Your job is to be engaged knowing who you side you're on. It's the Lord's battle. He is with us. He is for us. Therefore, who can be? If he is for us, who can be? But we forget that often. We don't remember the Lord of our youth. He's remembering the God who brought them out of Egypt. He's remember the God who led them by fire by night and wind by day. He's remembering the God who gave them manna from heaven every day. He's reminding them, this is the God that we serve. In my own life, when, when, when people, I start having that internal dialogue and you're not good enough. And when my faith isn't that high, I remember and, and, I, and I start to put my trust back where it belongs, not on those internal feelings, but on the God that I serve. I remember being 18 years old, praying at a church, and I felt something had changed, but I couldn't articulate what it was. And I remember shortly after that praying and getting news that my father had died. And the first time I had ever heard the Lord speak to me was when he's like, I have your heart in my hands. I remember not going through that alone. I remember not having enough money to eat and God provided. I remember being told you don't have what it takes. I remember being criticized for helping start this very church. We had no money and we were meeting in a factory. I remember feeling hopeless during the pandemic and then the Lord provided the feck. I remember when the church attendance fell down to 200 and the Lord brought it roaring back. I remember being turned down for loans. And then I remember when the Lord showed up and provided the very loans that you now sit in because it is not our battle that we've been fighting this whole time. Yet miracle after miracle, we prayed, we shoveled, and we let God do his thing. When somebody wanted to criticize, I would look up, acknowledge, go back and pray, and begin to shovel again. I don't care what you have to say. You can't build a church there. You can't do that. You cannot have the epicenter for a huge move of God come from Evansville, Indiana. And I'm going to tell you, not only can we, we are shoveling our way right to it. And we're not asking for people's permission, and we're not going to stop. And you can criticize. Other people can criticize. Why would, why would he choose Evansville, Indiana? It's the same reason that the Bible says, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
And the answer was yes, Nazareth was a ghetto. And we are the least and the last place on earth that people might look for a move of God. But I promise you that in time, our God with our shovels and our constant prayer and ignoring the critics, we're gonna be on the map as a haven of rescued souls. So here's what Nehemiah says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes and your loved ones. When people tell you the best days of the church are behind you, remind them of the God you serve and remind him of the commitment, the tenacity you have that I'll do whatever it takes, I'll keep fighting. Because my obedience, your obedience is not just to be a standard run-of-the-mill church. I want to be a church that changes the world. Not to make me famous, not to make you famous, but to make Jesus famous. Every Sunday morning when we pray with this team, I say the same line. I don't care if somebody ever remembers the church, Jesus. I don't care if they remember the Hills Church. I want them to encounter you. Somebody asked me last night at a barbecue, what's the hardest thing you have facing you today? I said, convincing the people of Evansville that they are called to be more than Evansville. That we can do things that are so great that people just wouldn't see it coming. How great would it be if we just started building churches and giving them to people? What if we were just that kind of church? We saw a need, we met the need. And people are like, well, you can't just do that. You can't just build churches and give them away. Why not? You said we couldn't build this one either. Yet here I sit. If it matters, there's going to be a battle. You will face opposition. Let me be very clear with you. If you're not ready for obedience to God and opposition to come your way, then you're not ready to be used by God. Critics are going to come. People are going to point. People are going to laugh. And the greater the opposition against you, the greater the opportunity for good God will fight for. Let me close by telling you what must have looked like the most ridiculous thing in history. When Noah goes to build the ark, no one had ever seen anything like it. There had never been a flood. There was no point. Could you imagine the ridicule that he faced over and over and over and over again? But you're here because of Noah's obedience. I'm here because of his obedience. You're living off of one man's obedience to God. If one man can shape the entire world, then a room of a 500 people, we can shake this earth. 
And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be obedient to God to where every child that doesn't have a home has not only a home, a Christian home, where no widow is left behind, where people don't die alone, where people know Jesus, they feel him, and the people who don't know him want him and don't fear the people who do know him. Can you just see that in your own heart? What a day that would be. If the church just went back to being the church, stop trying to take credit for everything, stop trying to get big and fat and build these huge whatever, and just was a lean, mean machine for helping people. Instead of criticizing the world, what if we just were like Jesus and say, I'll fight for you. I know that nobody else believes that you can do it. I think you can. Your dream sounds ridiculous, but I got your back. Why? Because I've seen God do the ridiculous more times than I can count in my own journey. We are a product of God's ridiculousness. We can't even write a book because it's too embarrassing. So today, with every head bowed and nobody looking around, you say, Pastor Earl, that's me. I'm ready to be obedient to God. I'm, I don't care if I face opposition. I want to make a difference. Will you raise your hand right now so I can pray for you? Thank you. Hands are going up. Others, you haven't raised your hand, but you know you need to. You're ready to make a difference. You're not afraid of opposition. Heavenly Father, I pray for every person within the sound of my voice. God, I know that you want to use us to make a difference. I know you want to use us to transform the lives, not only this city, not only this nation, but around the world. God, I pray that you continue to touch. I pray that you speak with so much clarity to those who raise their hands, those whose hearts are shaking right now, going, I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to do something. God, speak to them now. Be Jehovah Jireh, their provider right now in this moment. I bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.